Welcome, everyone. Political as Heck, podcast where we discuss Utah politics and policy. Corey Asso, joined by Utah State Senator Todd Weiler. What's up, Todd? Hey, well, good morning. Good evening, Corey. Good evening. Let's just jump right to it. So this week, Senator Mike Lee and challenger Evan McMullen held their one and only debate in the race for Senate from Utah. That debate is actually available on the Utah Debate Commission website for anyone who didn't get a chance to watch it live. And it's even better watching it uh, on replay because you can do it double time and all that. Anyway, a few to- top line takeaways here. I'd love to hear what you have to, what you thought, Todd. Here's a few of my thoughts. What really stood out to me, having worked in politics for almost two decades, uh, McMullen was just really canned and rehearsed. I mean, Lee, I mean, obviously has a much better command of the, in, of the details of the issues, but I wouldn't necessarily say that Senator Lee is a, is a natural debater in the sense of being like, you know, this head-turning order. But McMullen, in contrast, I mean, he just sounded like a poll-tested platitude bot is the best way I can describe it. Because regardless of the question, he started reciting his clearly rehearsed talking points like right away. Regardless of the question, he just he just jumped right into it. So he'd obviously memorize line after line. And the line about the Constitution, he said, is not, not, not being a prop. That was clearly canned and rehearsed. Unfortunately for him, I would say he flubbed it. So he didn't even land it even after using a memorized line. But Anyway, I think it was one memorized bromide after another. He definitely wants to come across as Mr. Uh, Bring the Warring Sides Together. He's very moderate in tone, or at least his talking points were, even if he's completely progressive in policy. But I thought it was, I think it's hard to come across as a consensus builder when essentially every response to a question just led into an attack line. So McMullen was on the attack really all night. And among other things, he attacked Senator Lee for visiting Russia and Vladimir Putin back in 2019. But as the New York Times put it, uh, Mr. Lee definitely eluded the attack, saying he had gone to Russia at, the, Russia at the invitation of the nation's ambassador to Moscow at the time, who was John Huntsman Jr., someone I think most of us have heard of. And McMullen either didn't do his homework or was banking on the hope that no one would set the record straight on that one. But he was attacking most of the night and I don't think we learned very much uh, about where he stands on the issues, but we definitely know he doesn't like Mike Lee. And I, and I really thought that that Mike Lee had clear and compelling answers for every attack. I I don't think that the, the progressives at the Salt Lake Tribune are going to accept his explanation for his emails following the 2020 election. But I do think that the majority of Utahns will find his explanation reasonable, even if maybe there's aspects of it that make him a little bit uncomfortable. I think it's reasonable. And I think the Trump campaign, you know, they posited a series of rumors. Lee did what he could to investigate the veracity of those rumors. He concluded that the the law didn't hold up based on their arguments. And he voted to certify the electors. I mean, his actual actions at the end of the day showed where he was. He voted to certify where a lot of several of his colleagues did not. So I think that McMullen has convinced himself, along with uh, the progressive resistance, we'll call it, that yelling January 6th over and over and over again is going to win the day. And I thought Senator Lee had a very solid answer. You know, he said some people on January 6th behaved very badly, but he wasn't one of them. And I think that's right. And you know what, Todd? I think very few people were there. And it's been the uh, objective of Evan McMullen and the rest of sort of the progressive left to paint all Republicans 
you know, regardless of whether they were there or not, all conservatives as insurrectionists, I think it's nonsense. It's fantasy. It's fan fiction for the radical left. And I think the people of Utah see right through it. What were your takeaways, Todd? Uh, very similar. I think the Russia attack was especially odd, especially when Mike Lee went over there to fight for religious freedom and try to get some, um, you know, religious uh, prisoners released uh, at the invitation of his old boss, John Huntsman Jr. I, I, I agree with you. I think I think that Evan McMullen thought that the debate was an opportunity for him to film some clips for social media right. um, immediately. Immediately, you know, after the debate, some of his canned, you know, criticisms, his campaign was, you know, tweeting out his snippets. And um, even the very first question of the debate, they asked Evan McMullen, what's one thing, you know, that you would, you know, bring back to Utah that's for good? And instead of answering that, he said, you know, he introduced his wife and their five kids, even though, you know, those are not his five kids. I understand he's a stepdad, but I thought that was kind of odd the way he introduce that but then he launches right into an attack of mike lee and and doesn't answer the question so doug wright asked asked it again a second time but it's just it's just clear to me that he he came to attack mike lee and look at there are people in the state that do not like mike lee um they already had his vote and so i don't know if he was just trying to throw them some red meat but um my takeaway was both of the candidates you know did enough to satisfy their base I kind of feel sorry for any truly undecided voter that tuned in because I just don't think that there was a lot there to, you know, I think I still think Senator Lee will win. But um, um, I don't know. I I, I felt like it was a debate that kind of, you know, left a lot uh, at, the you know, a lot of probably people wanting more. But again, I I agree. I don't think Senator Lee's strength is is debating, but I think he did a fine job. And. you know, it was entertaining to watch for me. Uh, one, one other thing I wanted to add. So on one of the attack lines, Doug Wright asked about ads and both sides have had super PACs like buying ads or whatever. And they, and he said, you know, he gave the candidates a chance to, I guess, co- comment on any of the ads that are out there. Lee didn't really have a comment, but McMullen pounced trying to imply that the Senator Lee was a liar for, for the club for growth ad. Again, we should we should, we need to, we need to clarify this. Like the campaigns cannot communicate with the super PACs, so it's not he doesn't get to call them and say, "Hey, I don't like that. Do this other thing," because that's actually illegal. But I mean, I, what I wish he would have done though is in that moment, I wish he would have turned the tables and asked Evan McMullen, "What percentage of the Republican base does McMullen believe is racist and bigoted?" Because McMullen doesn't deny that he he called Republican voters racist and bigoted. We're only just quibbling over how many, how many, what percentage he thinks are racist and bigoted. So I think a good question would have been, uh, hey, Mr. McMullen, um, why do you think it's okay to call Republicans racist? And what percentage do you think are racist and bigoted? You know? And uh, so I thought that was a missed opportunity. But it also goes to show that, um, I mean, I think that would have been a good prepared line, but it kind of goes to show that Senator Lee doesn't really think in those terms, probably, um, you know, versus uh, Evan McMullen, who obviously had memorized a lot. One final note, the Senate polls, we've talked about these over and over. The most recent is from um, OH Predictive. They have the race 47 for Lee, 32 for McMullen with 16 undecided. So that's a 15 point spread. 
I don't know if the spread is going to be that big, but I think 47-32 is probably a lot closer to what we're really looking at, you know, at the end of the day. And so McMullen had uh, Adam Kinzinger, Republican, um, you know, anti-Trump, uh, never Trumper. He's, he's been going around the country campaigning for Democrats. Uh, he campaigned for McMullen at the Salt Lake Library. So he's, he's, he's got these big names that are, that are part of the basically anti-Republican movement, you know, kind of coming to his aid. I don't know if you have any final thoughts on that, Todd. Well, yeah, um, Adam Kissinger is not a big name. Uh, I, my guess is 95% of voters don't know who he is. Um, yeah, he's true. only a big name because of the January 6th committee hearings. Um, he was the second Republican with Liz Cheney on, on the January 6th committee hearings. But I think that those committee hearings um, were a flop in, in the sense that they were designed to um, enrage the American people against Republicans and against Donald Trump. And I think the people that already hated Trump are the ones that, for the most part, watched those committee hearings. Um, you and I watched most of them. Um, but I was kept I kept on waiting for the smoking gun showing me that Trump was directly responsible. And there's a lot of unflattering stuff about Trump in those hearings that I didn't particularly like. I mean, I didn't particularly, you know, I, I believe that they were true. I, I didn't like the fact that Trump did those things, but they failed to deliver on that smoking gun. And I, I think that the viewership dropped off on each one after that first primetime one. So they kind of tried to roll this out like a Netflix series, like Stranger Things or something like that, but but um, it didn't work. And the number one issue on voters' minds nationwide right now is not January 6th. It's not MAGA Republicans. It's the economy and it's inflation and right. it's crime. And those are all that Democrats are losing on. After skipping out on a televised debate earlier this month, Congressman Burgess Owens agreed to debate uh, Democrat challenger Darlene McDonald. It's going to happen Friday, October 28th at 5 p.m. And that'll be the uh, the only face-off for the 4th Congress Congressional District race. It's going to be moderated by University of Utah political science professor James Curry, live-streamed without an audience, and press is not invited, and that's by design so that the Salt Lake Tribune cannot participate. Todd, what are your thoughts? Well, because uh, Burgess Owens has now refused the debate commission primary debate last June and general election debate last week, I'm glad that he's going to debate Darlene McDonald. Um, we both know he's going to handily win whether he debates her or not, but I think that this is an expectation from voters in this day and age. Um, I don't know. I, I said it last week and I repeated it. I think he's going to have to get over this thing with the Salt Lake Tribune. There, there are, I mean, there's only two newspapers really uh, in his district, and that's that's one of them. And I don't think, you know, he can stay in Congress and completely boycott and ignore them. I think that's just a little bit um, silly. And um, but, you know, I understand his point. Um, he's articulated it well. But if he's going to stay in office, I think he needs to talk to the press and um, so I'm glad he's debating. I don't think anybody's going to see it. And as I've said before, by the time he debates, you know, at least a third of the people who are going to vote will have already mailed in their ballots. Yeah, including me. Including yeah. me. So, me. Uh, yeah, I, me. I, I hear you when it comes to the Salt Lake Tribune. But at the same time, you got to you got to think, though, that it diminishes their influence, especially if other if other office holders in, in Utah start to get on board. And you could see definitely see the party getting on board. 
And, you know, I just hope that they'll take a lesson from it, maybe change their behavior a little bit, because I think you're right. You know, we only have really have two at least uh, written outlets. And I, I think he has a legitimate bone to pick. At the same time, you know, we, we definitely want to have, you know, access to, for at least people to, to get the, the download. And so I, I, hope, I hope that uh, the Salt Lake Tribune doesn't double down. And because if they do, I, I could definitely see the party and quite a few other members of the other members of Congress, the rest of the delegation saying, like, you know what, I, I don't I'm not going to do it either if they're going to play. So that's probably not and a good. Corey, I, I, I got to push back. I, I don't think it diminishes their influence. They're still going to watch the debate. Right. They're still going to report on what he does. They're still going to report on what Congress does. It just really gives him less of an opportunity to try to try to give his side and set the record straight. They're not going to stop reporting on Burgess Owens. They're not going to stop reporting on Congress. Um, so I, I, I don't see how this diminishes their influence. Um, well, I, don't I mean, that's, that's a fair point, but I, it diminishes in the sense that to the extent that there are people out there who, who still view the Tribune as a place of at least marginally objective. Like, well, in, anyone who views the Tribune that way is, is not paying attention. Um, the, the Tribune is what it is. Everybody knows what it is. It's a left-leaning liberal um, publication. And, but I don't think the other Congress people from Utah are going to boycott the, the Tribune. I just don't think that's a, a reasonable expectation. We haven't spent any time talking about kind of the overall election environment for 2022. And so just to give everyone an overview, if you're not following every, every twist and turn, I mean, essentially in the, in the spring, and especially following the Republican uh, victory in Virginia, the governor's race last fall, and then a, a near miss in New Jersey last fall, and then into, into this past spring, I think there was a lot of expectations on, on the side of Republicans that this was going to be a massive wave. And, you know, how these things work is like uh, there's always, you know, something that intervenes. And in this case, you had the the abortion ruling from the court and and Trump in the news a lot because of what because of the Mar-a-Lago raid and so forth. And then it was like, oh, no, now we're down in the dumps. Now, now we're not going to win. And some, you know, Pelosi's out there saying, oh, actually, we we think we're going to keep the house. You know, all along, I think maybe there was a little high. The expectations were a little too high. And uh, and then they were definitely way too low. And at this point, if uh, in in the final stretch right now, it's overwhelmingly likely the Republicans will take the House, probably pick up around 20 plus seats. You know, you could see somewhere between 20 and 30 is the most likely. The Senate is looking better and better every day, probably a pickup of one to two seats. Um the focus, uh, like you said, is reverting back to inflation and the economy. Gas prices are rising again. I think here in Utah, it dropped, gas prices dropped below $4 for like a minute. And even that's terrible, like three ninety five dollars or whatever it was in my neighborhood. But now they're back up over $4. Remember, gas prices were $2 when Biden took office, or right around $2. Now they're back up again. Inflation up 8%. Stock market dropped below where it was when Trump was president. So really the only thing that's held us back in the Senate from taking the Senate is some less than stellar candidates. And I'm not going to disparage our Republican candidates around the country. 
I think it is, uh, I think it's self-evident that we probably could have done better. Uh, and, and if we had chosen a little bit better, we wouldn't have anything to worry about right now. We'd probably be looking at a, maybe a three to four seat pickup. I think we would have been better off if President Trump hadn't stepped in to choose certain candidates and he, he really play, played a role. And, and I understand, you know, we hear now that on a few of them, he has some regrets and, you know, probably would have been better if he would have just like let the thing play out. But, you know, without question, if we come up short, that's the reason. But I think there's a lot of reason to believe that Republicans are going to have a, a big night and, and at least take the House, if not the Senate. Is that how you see it, Todd? Yeah, so the Dobbs decision definitely took some wind out of our sails. And I think the, the Mar-a-Lago raid, while it, it invigorated Republicans on the right, I think independents, it kind of scared them off a little bit. But those those two have worn off. And so for the past month or so, Republicans have been surging. And I expect that that's going to continue up and up and through Election Day on November 8th. Um, I, I think we're going to pick up, I think we'll be plus 30 in the House next year uh, for the Republicans. And I think we'll have at least 52, maybe 53. I mean, there's a potential for 55 Republicans in the Senate, but I'm going to say at least 52 in the Senate. Um, so I, I, I may be slightly more optimistic than you. Um, and um, I think that the Democrats peaked around early September and that Republicans are peaking right at the right time. So it's, uh, you know, it's kind of like a football game and it's momentum and BYU hasn't had it all their opponents, have. <laughs> but we've got the momentum the Republicans, you and I are both Republicans. We don't pretend otherwise, but we've got the momentum right now. And um, I think that that's going to translate very well at the ballot box. I like it. I like that prediction. So Governor Spencer Cox wants schools to ban cell phones in classrooms to improve the focus and mental health of students. He cited studies showing a link between social media exposure with de depression and anxiety. The governor actually doesn't have the authority to ban cell phones in schools. It must be done at the district, school district level. So he's calling on school districts to consider it. Todd, is this a good idea or a bad idea? I think it's a good idea. I think it's part of the the job of being governor is, is to put out some aspirational objectives and goals. I don't know that every school is going to ban them, but um, I know I'm distracted by my cell phone when I'm in a learning environment. Um, I know some parents are going to be concerned about their ability to reach their child in the event of emergency or vice versa. Um, so I don't know how this will all shake down, but I, I think more than anything, he's trying to remind parents that cell phones are are sometimes toxic um, uh, for, for kids. And, you know, our suicide rate in the state is perpetually in the top five in the nation. Um, and the other four are all in this Western belt, you know, where there's um, there's a lot of factors to that. But um, I think that um, social media is um, very often unhealthy for um junior high and high school kids. And I think this is probably a good PSA, if nothing else. I love the idea. It's, it's amazing to me that, that schools even allow cell phones. I mean, how, how could you even teach when kids have phones? Because, I mean, so I have kids in junior high and then in elementary school, um, not high school yet, but, but they tell me all the time, especially junior high kids, like, oh yeah, their kids in the class are constantly on their phones or and they even have their AirPods in. They don't, the teachers don't even stop them from doing that. I, I, I definitely think that there's real challenges when it comes to social media and so forth. And, and for all the parents out there, like you and I, we're 
you know, I'm with you when it comes to like, what's the right answer to a lot of this stuff. I don't pretend to know. It's difficult. You know, it's difficult raising kids right now in terms of phones and social media and all that. And what's the right thing and when should they be able to get a phone? And, and I'm not saying any of the answers are right or wrong. And I'm the last person to judge any parent because it's just really difficult and hard. Um, but you know, I think that kids in junior high, I mean, the, the phones are such a distraction. They are for adults, but they especially are for, for 14 and 15 and 16 and 17 year olds. And I just think that it has got to be a full-time job for teachers to police cell phones. And, you know, I'm sure it will actually will never happen. The ban that is because phones are used in so many aspects of learning now. I mean, the teachers will ask the kids to pull out their phone. I mean, one of my kids was like, this was a couple of years ago and, you know, she ended up getting a phone, but she said, you know, like the teacher tells us to pull out our phone to do whatever thing and, um, and open whatever app. And I don't have that. I don't have a phone. What am I supposed to do? And you're like, okay, yeah, that's, that's right. That is a problem. So I think at this point, they're almost a must have. And, and I can see the, the practical upside for, for teachers when it comes to the phones, but such a downside. But in any case, um, I think there's a lot of merit in Governor Cox's suggestion. He'll probably be ignored, but as a parent, I support it. Yeah. Agreed. The Center for Disease Control, the CDC, their independent vaccine advisors voted 15 to 0 on Thursday to add the COVID-19 vaccine to the childhood immunization schedules. That means CDC is recommending the schools require each school-aged child to have received the COVID vaccine before she or he starts school. So it should be said, the CDC can't mandate vaccination, can't do that on the federal level. Only the states and school districts can make that decision. But it's also true that throughout the pandemic, many, if not most, school districts and local governments basically just reflexively followed whatever CDC recommended. So I think there's a lot of reason to think that this, this will be the law of the land in a lot of places, a lot of school districts throughout the country. But and, and you know, following the CDC is actually quite the ride since CDC has changed its mind so many times on so many aspects of the pandemic, but you know, that's neither here nor there. 21 states have passed laws prohibiting COVID vaccine mandates for students. That includes Utah. In response, uh, Governor Cox tweeted, quote, I've been asked about COVID-19 vaccine mandates for children today. Let me be clear that this always has been and always will be a decision for Utah parents and families, not the state. Utah will not be implementing any CDC mandate of the COVID-19 vaccine for children. So obviously in response to that, you know, the Utah resistance Twitter went completely nuts, but I believe that the, you know, the overwhelming majority of Utah parents want the option to make that decision for their own kids and and the kids make the decisions. So people will obviously come to different conclusions. I think that's fine. You and I both are on the record saying that for adults, the vaccine is a, is a good idea. Um, but I applaud Governor Cox. Overall, I think he's navigated the pandemic pretty well. So kudos to him. And on, on this decision, I think is very good. And, and, and he's done much better than so many other states. So, Todd, what do you think? I, I'm going to say the same thing I was telling parents two years ago. If you want, your, yeah, well, well, I, I'll have to modify it because kids couldn't get vaccinated. But, you know, I was telling parents two years ago, if you want your child to wear a mask in school, they can wear a mask in school. No one's going to tell them they can't. Now, if you want your child vaccinated, they can be, you can get them vaccinated. I, I don't understand the issue, but the, the problem is, is so many parents, they want to force other people's kids to wear masks. They want to mm-hmm. force other people's kids to get vaccinated. We now know 
I mean, the, the director of the CDC has COVID right now. Uh, I can't remember her name. Um, we oh, now geez. know the, the vaccinations don't stop transmission of COVID. So we were all told, you know, we were all lied to for two years that, you know, if, if we got vaccinated, we would we'd protect grandma. Um, and who doesn't want to protect grandma, right? But, you know, now even the vaccine companies have admitted they never tested, um, you know, before, on their rapid uh, release of the vaccination. They never tested to see if it stopped transmissions and they don't stop transmissions. Um, what they do do is if you get COVID, it, it's going to hopefully not be as severe if you're vaccinated. So um, this whole argument that was used for years with the mandate, you know, with the with the mandates that, you know, we're going to stop transmission um, is is all fantasy. And I I can't believe the CDC's after all of the PR hits because they were wrong on so many things, Corey. So, oh, so yeah. things. I can't believe that this is the battle. This is the hill that they want to die on, no pun intended. But I, I just think it's a mistake. But fortunately, Utah legislature, the Utah governor, Utah school boards, um, they're not going to let the CDC decide this for Utahns. We're not going to mandate it. Uh, and again, any parents listening, if you want your kids vaccinated, get them vaccinated. Uh, it's America. Land of the free. Go ahead and get all your kids vaccinated. Um, we're not going to stop you. And we're not going to force your neighbors to do it. So that's where we are. Yeah, well said. And and just another factor that's that's rising to the top. Learning loss for students during the pandemic, for the school shutdowns and so forth. It's it's just so well documented now at this point. And you have you have President Biden, you got Democrats and the horrific national teachers unions trying to rewrite history, saying that it was Republicans. That's just not even true. I I will I personally have never been more radicalized by an issue than the way the Democrats dealt with uh, the pandemic, and I think it's I think it's an uh, absolute tragedy and, uh, and you know an insult to America that we allowed the children to. I mean, it's like so many kids. If they if they have if they have uh, parents who were able to work from home or had the resources to find other op other options, a lot of them did fine. But so many others, and these are the the least among us, um, is a real challenge. And I think it's uh, I, and the I, American people will remember um, who shut it down and who didn't. So I feel so bad for the kids that were in third and fourth grade. You know, during the shutdown. My grandmother, may she rest in peace, she, was, she always told me when I was a kid that fourth grade was the most important grade. But statistically, we know if you're not reading at grade level by fifth grade, your odds of ever catching up, um, you, you t generally just fall further and further behind. Yeah. And so um, there, we have a generation of kids that will, some of them will recover, but a portion, a, a fraction of them will never recover from this COVID setback. And, yeah. um, and that's sad. And Many of us were shouting from the rooftops. We got to get these kids back in school in person. And the Democrats, the teachers union, the Biden administration, they just doubled down um, on bad policy. And, and for, unfortunately, some of our kids will never recover from that. Yeah. Yeah. It's an absolute scandal. All right. That's it. Thanks, Todd. Thanks, Corey. See you next See you week. Next time.